Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the Thinking Fans Premier League Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and stat heads. Today, we're joined by soccer analyst Harshal Patel and professional footballer Dre Fortune. I'm host Chris Mumford. Bella Chow. We have a special guest joining us, coach and analytic celebrity David Seymour. We're sponsored by the Premier League Guide, a 300-page book for those mad about football, Moneyball for Football, Opposition Analysis Plus High Candy. The next update is available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Over the coming weeks, we'll be transitioning to the Thinking Fan Football Club podcast platform in YouTube. Please subscribe. This week, we had a curious one of odds and ends along with the FA Cup. Midweek matches were littered with makeup games, including Man City, Austin Villa, Man United, Fulham, Liverpool, Burnley. Uh, and then on the weekend, we saw uh, interesting games with Man United, Liverpool, Do as well as Southampton and Arsenal in the FA Cup. But we've got to talk about the big news of the day, probably of the week, uh, is the sacking of Lampard from Chelsea. Harshel, did you expect this was going to happen? And what do you think the final straws were? Um, yeah, I mean, I did expect it to happen. Although um, when it didn't happen after Chelsea lost to Leicester, I thought that maybe the board and the hierarchy at Chelsea were going to give him more time. I expected it to happen right after that game. But it seems as though they've taken this week to sound out potential replacements and, and get that, there's whatever su- uh, succession planning needed to be done before then obviously formally notifying Lampard that he's uh, he's been sacked, even though they won their FA Cup game on the weekend. But uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I was expecting this to happen at some point in the next uh, few weeks or so, or... I mean, as I said, I expected it to take place after the Leicester game. And I think that Leicester game was the final straw in terms of Chelsea not looking like... I mean, they've they've really not looked good enough against the teams who they should... I mean, I wouldn't say they should be beating them, but against the teams uh, who, who they should be around in terms of their, their place in the table. So I don't think they've beaten a top six side at all this year. They've uh, they obviously lost to Leicester as well. They... They only managed to draw with United. They got thrashed by uh, by City. Um, so they they've only I mean Lampard only did well against I think the teams in the bottom half of the table this year. He's uh, this season he he's really struggled against the top sides. And I'm not saying that that is the reason. There is a there are a number of factors, and we can get into that with everybody uh, on on this episode as well. But one of the reasons I think will be the fact that they've looked so. Um, I mean, they've looked so off the pace in terms of the race for the top four, and that's a minimum at Chelsea, especially given the amount of money they invested in the summer. So I think that is one of the big reasons why he got sacked. Trey, what what's your take on from a from a player's perspective? What what were some of the contributing factors to Lampard being sent out? I think just watching the team week in and week out, they they struggled to seem to have an identity in a clear you know, way that they were that they were going to go about their football. And obviously without having success and without getting the results that are expected of them, um, you know, as of the last however many years, Chelsea's been expected to be competing for, for not only first place, but at least top four minimum. And, you know, that's not really what we're seeing right now. So um, I just, I personally would have expected that they maybe would have given him 
towards the end of the year, at least. But uh, I mean, it, it was diff- it was always going to be difficult for him, just with his limited experience as a manager going to such a big club. Um, I think presented a challenge, but it's unfortunate for him that that he hasn't matched it. David, was this uh, was this the right thing to do for Chelsea? I think, yeah, I think it was at this time, just with their position in the table mm-hmm. and the amount of money that they spent in the summer has obviously just put huge amounts of pressure on him and he hasn't delivered. And I think that when you spend 200 million in a transfer window, you're going to expect more. And I think that a lot of these people that are in the Lampard in camp are those that are saying it's a project, give him time. It's not really a project if you're spending 200 million. Um, and I think that, that that's an issue. I think last year he was given grace because of their situation with the transfer embargo. And he did, he did fine. He did as expected, I think. And if you'd offered them Champions League at the beginning of the season, they probably would have been pretty thrilled with that. But I think as the season progressed, they looked fine. But yeah, I agree with what Dre said about sort of a lack of clear identity in that club. Um, <laughs> I, I think there's a lot going on as well behind the scenes there, potentially. There's some pretty devastating articles uh, going around online today about the, the Lampard regime as such and some of the players potentially not being overly happy. And so, yeah, it makes a lot of sense, particularly as well when you think about the money they spent on Timo Werner and Kai Everts. It makes sense to bring in a coach that will get the best out of two players who are frankly two of the best players in the Bundesliga last year. You know, I probably have a an alternative take on things. I... I think it was too soon to sack Lampard. Um, my sense is, and again, we will never know this, but that a lot of the players that were bought this summer were not of his choosing, weren't tops on his list. Uh, if you believe uh, The Athletic, uh, which is a very credible source, he really wanted to focus on building up the defense, which if you looked at last year, how this project was going, uh, made sense to do that. Um, good news, defense got better, but it seems like ownership has given so many toys to Lampard. He struggled with really trying to figure out who his top six, you know, midfield and, and strikers are, uh, and, and really feeling, I imagine feeling great pressure to play particular players, Werner being one of them versus allowing one or two other players that performed better. Uh, if you, care about things like goals per 90 minutes, like Giroud and Abraham were, um, you know, it, it made for a messy situation where he was giving, giving parts to a puzzle, uh, that, that weren't necessarily the puzzle that he was, he was working on. Uh, and they grew impatient. I get the fact that he was, he, he's a fairly inexperienced coach. Um, but the truth is everybody knew that coming in. So, I think this is more of a systemic failure of the organization and the owner's whims than it is of Lampard. Harshell, any thoughts on that? Oh, I mean, definitely there's been a, a failure of the system in the sense that you're, you're absolutely right about the inexperience part because when Lampard was hired last year, it w- I mean, almost everybody thought that this was more of a stopgap and more of a way to mollify the fan base because you're bringing in a club legend. You know, he's the he's the... Uh, top goal scorer in there in Chelsea's history, and uh, your, your, the fact was—I mean, it seemed as though he was being brought in as a, a way to calm fans down and sort of steady the ship before they brought someone else in a year or two years down the line. 
they the hierarchy made it clear that that was not the case but inadvertently that's basically what's happened he he steadied the ship for a year got them top 4 during a time when obviously they had they were under a transfer embargo and let's not forget he's done something that no chelsea manager under abramovich managed to do which is to bring through a number of academy players to sort of established i wouldn't say established places places in the 11 as such other than mason mount but certainly um they've they've made a name for themselves in the squad where they are credible squad options you look at um tammy abraham reese james uh ruben loftus-cheek has obviously been injured and now he's gone on loan but billy gilmore was given his debut and and sort of his breakthrough under under lampard you, you we've seen mason mount callum hudson-odoi has probably not played as much as he would have liked but he's also someone who's been in and around the squad Fikayo Tomori, another player who made his breakthrough under Lampard, but now obviously didn't have enough opportunities and was sent out on loan to AC Milan this month. But overall, I mean, you've not seen this sort of uh, progression from the Chelsea youth academy to the Chelsea first team under any manager uh, up, uh, under uh, since Roman Abramovich uh, bought the club. So that I think is definitely a, a positive in terms of how I think fans should look at Lampard's reign, but. Yes, I think there has been a bit of a failure in terms of I think their recruitment in general because they did buy some of these players but without a fixed idea of how they he, they would fit in in terms in in the 11 and that may be down to the fact that as you said some of them might not have been Lampard's choice because he's looked at I mean the way in which Werner has been used and and in which Havertz has been used has been and I I will go as far as to say it's been criminal because you they've absolutely not been utilized in terms of their strengths if you look at how they played in the bundesliga over the last couple of seasons so it does look like they've bought the sort of the shiniest available objects in the transfer market and i do get the sense of opportunism there because of the way the market was with covid i mean if you get the chance to sign a havertz you should take it you know no matter where you are in terms of your project and squad building if you have the money available and if you're able to persuade a player like of that caliber to come i mean i i do get that but it does seem that a lot of it is a little bit haphazard and i mean let's see where they go with their next appointment the it's most likely going to be thomas tuchel according to almost every media house out there so uh, let's see let's see how it goes let's, but yeah i do think there has been a bit of a systemic failure let's let's pick that up in just a moment so if you look at uh xg for chelsea uh for the season so far it's been 1.89 the actual goals they've scored is 1.98 while as at opponents is, uh, the xg was 1.12 and they've and it's been actually had 1.2 goals uh per match scored on them so they've kind of their xg and their their goals um line up pretty well um you know i do think that there've been some instances where they've they've been a bit unlucky there's a transition that's going to be happening Dre, do you have much experience about being on teams where new coaches came in, and what what's that personal experience like for the players? Um, yeah, I had that happen once. It wasn't mid-season though, so I think it's obviously a little bit different when it happens in the middle of everything going on. Things have to happen a bit quicker. But um, yeah, for me, when it happened, I mean, it was just one of those things where you know a, a new manager comes in and. obviously you're a team but everybody individually wants to understand what the manager is looking for for your specific position and try to obviously make good first impressions and and get yourself out there so that you can be on the pitch every every game so um obviously i think i think people are going to be upset some people are going to be upset lampard's gone some people are going to be fine with it some people might be happy 
and they're just going to look to have a clean slate, start fresh. And I, it, it should be a boost for the squad going forward. At least just everybody should be starting from zero and, and resetting everything that's going on at the moment. So hopefully it gets them a, a good run of games and doesn't take them in the opposite direction. Well, they, they are going to have a lot of games in, in the ne- in the next 14 days. They're going to have four matches. So it is a very peculiar time to be bringing in a new head coach. David, what do you think Tuchel's the right man for this? And who are the winners and losers going to be with this? Yeah, I think I think Tuchel's a really astute appointment. Um, I think that you're going to you're going to see him gradually start to pull the best out of the particular two the two German signings that uh, we spoke about already. Uh, obviously, he's got experience of working with Pulisic and Thiago Silva, so that's probably been a bit of a a, um, a Something to think about for the board when they were, when they were bringing him in about what players he can he can start to get the best of. He, he plays a different style of football to what Lampard is going to play, so that'll be interesting to see how he sort of looks to bring that in this season because it's certainly not going to be an easy job to just suddenly put your principles of play into action halfway through a season. Um, I think I just also like to quickly jump on just a couple of the, the things that we said already. I don't want to stir the pot too much, but when we talk about the expected goals and expected goals against, yeah, they're pretty much in line. But I think if you look at individual games, that's when the picture starts to change a little bit. So uh, against Spurs and Villa, those were both draws and they had significantly higher XG than their opposition in those games. Uh, same with the Wolves game, which they lost as well. So I think there's been individual games which haven't gone their way. And if you look at the expected points table, Chelsea actually should be in third place mm-hmm. um, with 33 points and they've actually got 29 at the moment. So I think it's down to certain individual games where potentially they've been particularly unlucky. And the last thing I'd like to say as well with the with the transfers, it's, it's interesting that what we've read today is that Chelsea potentially signed those players that he maybe wasn't overly fond of. I think maybe that's just a nail in the coffin, even in, even in the summer. They're signing players that he's not really fussed about. They're signing them because they know they're going to get a better coaching at some point. Who's who's going to really want those shiny, you know, players that are that they brought in? Well, it's it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. Uh, you know, I I'm a everyone knows I'm a longstanding fan of Giroud, and I'm, I'm my sense is that things aren't going to look great for him uh, as this transition occurs, but. Um, um, we shall see if uh, they get the new um, new manager bounce, um, but they better start bouncing fast because the games are, are are thick and furious. They've got uh, uh, Wolves coming up shortly and um, uh, Sheffield United. They're going to have a bit of a breather on, um, but uh, things are going to start getting to be uh, really challenging them for them with, with Tottenham uh, and then the, they've got Burnley. So um, three matches that maybe Tuchel will have some time to uh, to work on some things and Tottenham, they're going to have to get get down to business on the fly on. So let's turn our attention to the uh, the Man City um, uh, Aston Villa game. Harshel, can you help unpack that for us? I mean, the Man City, we, we spoke about how a lot of people including us to an extent, to be honest, um, earlier on in the season had almost discounted Man City 
in terms of the title race not as i mean i wouldn't say in terms of the of the title race but because they had played fewer games and they weren't really firing as much as you would expect them to you were more or less concentrating on liverpool and who and and you know who can be their biggest challengers and city weren't maybe that much in the spotlight because as i said you know you weren't getting the sort of goal output the sort of creativity that you're used to from city and i think that that game against chelsea that we spoke about where they won 3-0 at, at stamford bridge has really sort of flicked a switch in that squad because that game i think was one of the best performances by city not just this season in the last couple of seasons i think and since then they've done really well they they beat united in the carabao cup semi final they've and they've gone on to to win a few other games in the premier league as well including this one against aston villa i think it's interesting the fact that again their defense is doing such a great job uh, the that partnership between ruben diaz and john stones looks absolutely solid and i i say i said it last week i'm saying it again you know if you told me at the start of this season that john stones would be the sort of the linchpin of the city defense in come 2021 i would have laughed you off the park because Sorry, it looked like he was on his way to arsenal i mean at one point on this uh, of the summer window and you've he's keeping americ laporte out of the team and i mean on form not that laporte is unfit at the moment he's just been playing so well and he's formed such a good partnership with ds that laporte looks i mean it looks really difficult for the, for him to get in he's and city have conceded what one goal in the last 10 games since john stones came into the side so that defensive uh solidity i think has been the bedrock on which pep has managed to get city up the table again and that's again a little bit in- interesting for me because you normally associate city with say if you look at a league table over the last 2 3 4 years since pep has been in in the premier league you normally see city in the top probably in the top two goal scorers every season but this season it's if they've had the stingiest defense if you look at xg uh you know xga if you look at actual goals conceded i think they're also conceding the least number of shots uh, per 90 so a lot of metrics defensively they've done well uh and offensively they're getting the mojo back but we spoke about i mean you mentioned it earlier that now that kevin de bruyne is going to be out for 5 6 5 to 6 weeks um it'll be interesting to see how how they cope because a lot of their creativity has flown through him this season dre what have your experiences been like uh KDB clearly is their their super creative playmaker how does a team triage given that the that that circumstance and who do you think could step in um it'll be, I I think it'll be pretty tough for them to kind of fill that void it's obviously he does so much for them going forward and as a leader as well uh you know it's just going to it's going to take a team effort everybody's going to have to work together and then essentially just do more i mean they they they're, they're going to not necessarily from working harder but in terms of producing goals creating opportunities and whatnot they're going to have to really get together and do that and i mean they have at the end of the day they have the individual quality to do it the likes of sterling mares um you know hopefully aguero comes back soon uh foden's been coming along well gundogan does well in the midfield these are all guys who are capable of of helping to produce and fill that void that that's going to be left as he's as he's out injured but um it's definitely going to you know it's it's an unfortunate time for them as they've just kind of really found their their form and their rhythm and they they've really gotten going but uh we've seen pep do wonderful wonderful things uh while missing players and and while needing to adjust on the fly so i'm sure he'll come up with something that's going to help them out and help them sustain this level of play they've had 
So, David, Man City's got West Brom, Sheffield United, Burnley, and then Liverpool. Ha- what's your take on, on what's going to happen? I mean, I really feel like they just got their mojo. Will Bernardo Silva be that guy? Will Gundogan really have some more space to be creative? How do you, how do you see this playing out? Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see. I would imagine you're going to see Foden start to be brought in central more frequently. Um, so I think a lot of impetus is going to be put on the, the wide players as well. <laughs> the, the thing with Kevin De Bruyne is obviously, yeah, he is absolutely so central to everything they do um, in attack, but he wanders across the pitch. We know that. So, you know, he'll drop out into the right back space to hit three passes or he'll suddenly he'll go into over to left wing or whatever. They don't really have another player that, that is going to do anything like that. So it's going to change the way they play. But I still don't see a massive concern for them in terms of personnel. They've got a lot of outstanding players that are going to come in and affect, affect them. I think if we compare them to, let's say, Spurs or Manchester United, both of those clubs, if you took their best players, let's just say either Son or Kane got injured for Spurs or Bruno Fernandes got injured for United, I think that would have a huge um, indication towards their form, massive indication. But with City, I don't think, as amazing De Bruyne is, I still think they've got enough people to come in and, uh, and keep the, uh, the ship steady. Okay. Well, we'll see. They, they do have uh, um, some uh, lower league um, teams that they can kind of find their, regain their mojo on uh, before they hit Liverpool uh, in four games time. But well, let's turn our attention to Liverpool, uh, which has been a real head scratcher as of late. Uh, they played Burnley and shockingly, shockingly, they lose 1-0. Um, David, what, what happened there? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a masterclass in how to set an effective low block from Sean Dyche. It was a culmination of some outstanding defensive work as a as a unit from Burnley, a superb goalkeeping performance from Nick Pope, and a real off day from Liverpool. And all those things came together to definitely bring about one of the, the weirdest results of the season. As a game, it really it wasn't a great game. Uh, I feel like. There's been a dip in some of the, not necessarily the quality, but the excitement of some of the games, and potentially that's down to just the sheer volume that's been happening over the past month. But yeah, it was it was a <laughs> it was a bizarre result, and uh, it was interesting to see uh, Jurgen Klopp and how he's reacting to the current difficulties that are facing him as well. There's been a few times recently where he's potentially let his guard down a bit. He's got angry during a press conference or whatever. I think the altercation at halftime between him and Dyche as well is another example of that. So I think he's starting to feel the pressure a bit as well. Yeah, you know, it's very um, interesting. Earlier in the season, people talked about how grumpy um, Pep uh, seemed to be getting. And I guess I don't care which manager you are. If if you're underperforming, you probably get grumpy. Uh, It's probably part of your DNA. Harshel, what are your what are your notes on on Liverpool? I mean, the Burnley game almost seems like yet another um, piece of evidence that something's not quite right. I will say that the, I think the statistical likelihood that they're only going to score one goal in ninety shots again, I, I think they're probably going to regress to the mean. But in any any notable thoughts on on the Liverpool? Uh, kind of where they are and and in a bit we'll get into the the Man United Liverpool match but any general thoughts on Liverpool um I've said this um 
on earlier episodes as well the fact that they've not had van dijk and and to a lesser extent joe gomez in terms of their build up play has been one of the biggest uh i'd say one of the biggest issues with liverpool since they lost van dijk uh in the merseyside derby they've not really struggled defensively if you look at the number of goals they've conceded since that game it's not too many i think it's two in or two or three goals in the league if i'm not mistaken i could be wrong here i'm spitballing off the top of my head but they've not really conceded too many goals in that time but it's the fact that the just the the range of passing that van dijk brings to liverpool from center half the 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 diagonals that he is able to send out to alexander arnold or robertson and it's about and again something i mentioned earlier it's it's about a split second or or two but that's what makes the difference as to whether robertson receives the ball with space to to run into or whether he receives the ball with a defender already covering his path so he doesn't he isn't able to sort of run forward or he has to check back or he has to pass to to mane or or whatever you know so that attacking rhythm has been broken down another thing i feel is the fact that since they've had to move fabinho and jordan henderson into center back it's again sort of had a knock on effect in midfield because one of the things that jordan henderson did really well is to cover for alexander arnold when he went forward because he would sort of drop in to that sort of right back position from his place in midfield which would allow uh uh alexander arnold to go forward and we've not been able to see that a lot th- uh, since henderson's gone into central defense because thiago doesn't do that when aldum plays on the left he's not going to cover on the right you've seen you've actually been seeing jordan shakiri play as the sort of third central midfielder in a lot of games and he's d- definitely not going to be the guy who who slots in there so alexander arnold has had to sort of curtail his forward runs a little bit which again affects the balance the attacking balance so it's just those sort of things you know another thing we've not which has been a problem i wouldn't say a problem but one thing which we've not seen at all is to see fabinho and thiago play in midfield together because i think in an ideal world the best uh, or the most balanced um, liverpool midfield would be fabinho thiago and one of wijnaldum or or henderson because fabinho can be that sort of number 6 who sits back and and protects the center backs and thiago as good as he is as a number 6 i think he's at his best as a number 8 in this setup because the creativity that he brings to the side is much more useful 20 yards up the pitch than where he is at the moment so we've not been been able to see that as well so it's just two three two or three small things in terms of positioning of players and where they're being played but that's having a a, a huge impact on the way that liverpool uh, are playing tactically so i think i mean i would ex- I, i i don't think they're going to go out and buy a center half in in this window because there's no point in buying someone five games and then he's not going to play once the the regular guys fit right so unless there's a long term target who, be- who becomes available somehow but they do need to somehow figure out a way to i, I mean i would be all for playing the likes of nat phillips and and reese williams as much i mean wherever possible and which and allowing henderson or fabinho to play in midfield because that's where they're lacking more than defensively i think it's it's the creative aspect of their game where they're lacking which we're seeing with the with the lack of goals good thank you dre what's your take on man united they had a fairly pedestrian win over fulham uh, 2-1 midweek and then they played liverpool in an fa cup match what's what are some general observations about Man United and then we'll get into the specifics of the game. Well, I think right now they're they're 
comfortable and, and confident side. I mean, they've found the results as of late. They find themselves on top of the table, which is obviously nice. And at the end, of, I mean, they, they have individual talents that are going to be able to take them as, as far as their performances will go with the likes of Bruno, Paul Pogba, Marcus Rashford, uh, to just name a couple. So I think, I think right now they, they've, they've found what works for them and they're in a good little groove and um, it'll be a little bit more challenging, I think, with you know Europe coming back into play and obviously um, as the season goes on and, and different things happen, whether or not it be injuries, fatigue, whatever, uh, obviously that's going to that's gonna cause a little more rotation and whatnot. Um, there was definitely conversation about whether Bruno was, was tired and needed to be rested uh, but you know, as players, you never want to sit on the side. You always want to go out there and play, and then hope to score. So, no, I, th- I think I think they're doing quite well right now. It's a, a a good run for them, and I don't really see too much getting in the way of it. I mean, they've they've adjusted their tactics based on who they've played quite well. I think um, we we spoke about earlier in the year how they were or how they seem to struggle against teams who let them have the ball, and I think they've they've solve that issue a bit more and they, they've, they've played better in that respect. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, like I said, at the end of the day, when you got a guy like Pogba who scores the goal he does against Fulham or Fernandez who scores a free kick he does against Liverpool, uh, you know, that those are easy bailout options at the end of the day. So I think they'll, I think they'll be fine. Well, they are going to have uh, some work ahead of them in the next couple of weeks. They'll start off with Sheffield United on Wednesday and then they'll play Arsenal, Southampton and Everton. And then the mighty West Ham uh, in the fifth round of the FA Cup. Uh, so uh, the rubber is going to hit the road. David, help us unpack what happened uh, on Sunday uh, in the Man United Liverpool match. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was an interesting game. And I think partic- particularly more interesting because of what happened already um, the week before. And uh, it, I mean, I think Harsh will probably. Be, the man to, to ask more for this one, but it felt to me like after the week before, it looked like there was a lot more belief in that United team that they could go and and win that game. Um, is that something you felt, Harshal? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, not exactly from the lineup as such, because it was pretty similar to the one that was put out over the week, uh, I mean, a week ago with a few changes, obviously Bruno being rested being the biggest one, but in terms of the game itself, yes, it did look like United gave it a much better go. But also, I think just that it, it, they looked, I mean, for example, Marcus Rashford looked an absolutely different player to the one a week ago against Liverpool, where, I mean, I think he got caught offside six times in the first half against Liverpool in the league game, whereas he was right on the money here in terms of the runs he was making. And obviously, we saw the pass he put on for Greenwood in the first half for the equaliser. He himself got the the... Uh, United second goal in, uh, early on in the second half, but just in general, his movement, his his positioning, the runs he was making, the the fact that he was taking on defenders, all of that, and that he's just the sort of embodiment of how confident I thought United were in general in this game. Uh, so yeah, I, I absolutely agree that uh, United looked a lot more confident, and I think that's there's a number of things that are, uh, that I'd put that down to the fact that they are where they are in the table, the fact that they avoided the defeat against Liverpool in the league and probably should have won it with the with the late chances that they had. And I think Ole has done a brilliant job behind the scenes in terms of managing just the culture and the squad morale. I, th- I think that it, 
the, the most obvious thing, I, know, I guess it's a cup game, so it's going to be a slightly different approach, but I felt like the week before there was, I wouldn't say a timidity to their uh, performance, but there was certainly a fear of losing. And I didn't get that at all from their performance in the FA Cup. Uh, I think they, they they had more possession, although I know Liverpool still had more in, in, in total, but I know they had more possession than they did the week before. And I think they had double the amount of shots as well. And it, they just looked slightly more open as a team. And yeah, they're going to concede goals by doing that, but it definitely helped them, you know, put put uh, goals on the board as such. Well, good. Um, it's Give me a gut check. Does anybody think that Man United has a a better than the rest chance of winning the Premier League this this season? Yeah, it's theirs, it's theirs to lose. It's theirs to lose at this stage. You think for, for Man United? Yeah. I disagree. I think I think City's still for me the top the top runner. Um we'll see how they do within the next few games without De Bruyne, but I, I think City's the team to beat. Harsha? Yeah, I'll have to agree with Dre on that as much as I'd love to say that United are favorites, but I think City have a game in hand and just in general, I would still make them favorites. Title winning experience in the squad with Pep, just the overall quality, as David said, you know, they can afford, they've not had Aguero. I mean, look at it this way. They've not had Aguero for virtually the entire season and they've still managed to, uh, they are where they are in terms of, I think if they win their game in hand, they go top of the table. So yeah, uh, they just have the depth to be able to cope with all of these uh, absences that we are going to have this season, you know, injuries, COVID, all of that is going to lead to a lot more uh, squad rotation and they have a lot more quality in depth. And I think that that at the end of the day will maybe get them through. But I mean, we have said that this is going to be one of the weirdest seasons in recent history. So if ever there was a season where a team like a United could win the title, it's it's going to be this one because I think normal service is going to resume from next uh, season onwards with Liverpool and City. So this is probably the best chance United are going to get in a long time to win the title. Well, I, I tell you what, ask, ask the question again in like five weeks' time when City <laughs> have played Spurs and yeah, Liverpool, Liverpool and they've yeah. got to play United as well, haven't they? So Yeah, but that's a while away. But in the last next five weeks, they're going to play Liverpool and uh yeah, they're going to play Liverpool and Spurs, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I still wouldn't count Liverpool out of contention. with. I mean, I think it's Liverpool and Man City. I wish I could come up with something more more unique. Um, I do think there's a case that they're legit contenders. Um, you know, I don't think the KDB injury is the last major injury amongst the top teams. So um, we've still got a... We've still got some very good reasons to continue watching these matches. Uh, Dre, before you move on, Chris, I just want to say let's not let's not ignore Leicester City as well. They're right, they're right up there. I don't imagine they'll win, but they're you know they're only two points off the top at the moment. Hey, no, let me jump on the end of that. I've got. I, <laughs> why are we ignoring Spurs as well? Hey, because listen, if they they've got a couple of big games coming up, if they can beat Liverpool, is that next week? Suddenly, you're looking at Spurs. They've gone for a terrible like, run of form, and yet they're still within touching distance. They can't play much worse than they did over the last like, five weeks. So if they turn it around, they need, maybe, they need one or two players in this transfer window, I think. But I don't think they're out of it either. Well, I don't think they're out of it. I just I wonder about the inevitability of Sun or Kane going down for three weeks or so. And I, they just don't have the depth to do that. They're such a well-constructed team, as you would expect a Mourinho team to be. Um, but 
hey, I'm just so happy we're talking about parity and there's more than one team or two teams that could win the Premier League. So uh, just to jump in there, Chris, sorry, again, but to jump in on Jay's comment, because I, I do think we need to mention Leicester here as well in a little more detail, because I mean, Jamie Vardy is going to be absent for a two, three weeks, maybe. He's just had surgery uh, on a long-standing issue that he was managing. So Brandon Rogers has sort of chosen this moment to say that, hey, you know what, let's get this issue sorted out so that you can be at full tilt for the rest of the season. So I'd be interested to see who how they play without him because he hasn't really been scoring too much in the last few weeks, but he just adds so much to their game in terms of his off-the-ball uh, energy and pressing when they're out of possession. But And the fact that his threat um, in terms of uh, running in behind forces teams to drop deeper and that opens up space for the Leicester midfield. So, because Kelechi Hinacho is a very different type of striker um, and he's arguably not really ever kick-started his Leicester career. And, I mean, let's see how that works out. But arguably, they've not really needed Vardy over the last few weeks. It's been the James Madison and Javi Barnes show in terms of goal scoring. Yuri Telemans has been pulling the strings in midfield and Rodgers has managed to get back a lot of his injured players, you know. Um, Chagla uh, Soyuncu started in the FA Cup. Ricardo Pereira started in the FA Cup. Uh, so he's getting back a lot of the players that he didn't have for large parts of this season. He won't have Vardy, but uh, they've not really needed him, him in terms of goal scoring in the last few weeks. So I don't know if, if Madison and Barnes can keep their form up, if Telemans can keep playing the way he has been. We, as as David said, as Jay said, you know, we Leicester certainly aren't out of it. Spurs also probably aren't out of it. So It'll be great. I mean, I think in the next five weeks, a lot of things could get clear. Well, let's turn our attention to that Southampton-Arsenal match, which, interestingly enough, um, Arsenal had uh, 62% possession of the ball. Um, you don't see a lot of times when when Arsenal was doing that, but I'm, I think Southampton was very happy to, to cede possession as usual. There were 23 shots total, but only each team only had two on target. And the one that got in was Southampton. So there was XG of 1.07 for Arsenal and 0.79 for Southampton. Is there cause to worry that the 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 rehabilitation of Arsenal is is stalling, Dre? No, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, it, uh, a much weaker lineup than the usual than the normal one, and um, they it, it just showed on the day the team just wasn't as strong and they they didn't perform as as well as they have been in recent weeks and you know unfortunately it's an own goal that decides the game mm -hmm. but uh yeah i mean I, I think it's just as simple as that i don't think there are any i don't think there are any alarm bells going off at least not for me uh i think they play southampton again in the league next or something or sometime soon so that'll be the more interesting game for me yeah they're playing tomorrow uh southampton and they're playing man united wolves aston villa leeds benefica man city benefica leicester um, so <laughs> they've probably got arguably the most brutal uh, next six weeks of of any team in the in the Premier League. So uh, we're going to find out real soon uh, what their their medal is. David, any any uh, any thoughts on Arsenal? Um, I think that potentially they that they're a really nice run of form and things were looking up. But listen, they beat Newcastle before this game, and anyone could beat Newcastle. Um, and then the game before that, they were poor against Crystal Palace. And Crystal Palace were the better team there. And it was, uh, I think it was a near nil draw. It was certainly a draw. Mm -hmm. And Palace were the, be the better team in that game. 
And I think that Southampton, that was a, that was a close game in itself. Potentially going for another little bit of a lull. This one, when we talk about projects, we talk about Lampard. This one is actually, I thought, a proper project. They're, they, they've certainly got a little bit of money, but they, they're not spending the sort of money that Chelsea are spending. And, and there is an issue at that club. There's players there that I think that are certainly worth investing in long term. And there's players that are maybe coming towards the end of their career who are on that last big payday. And it's, it's an interesting dynamic. So, um, yeah, patience is definitely key for, for Arteta, I think. Interesting. Harshal, what's your take on Southampton? Um, I've said this earlier again that that they just, I mean, it's the lack of depth that's holding them back in terms of their squad because on when Ralph Hasenhutl has his first choice eleven available to him, they can beat any team in the league, and they've shown that this season already. I mean, they beat Liverpool a few weeks ago, and even that was with quite a few notable absentees. So, I mean, they I think they are trying to get some uh, players in in the window. I think they the one area where they absolutely need some cover is at fullback because uh, there's there's literally nobody to cover for Ryan uh, Bertrand at left back and even at right back Jan Valery is what 19 he's he's played a few games in the Premier League over the last couple of seasons but he's hardly uh, you know you you wouldn't want to rely on him for any significant amount of time so that's just one area but they are just broadly throughout the squad I think they need to bring in a few players to to just beef up numbers because most days, I mean, if I, I look at the Southampton bench and I see squad numbers from the high 40s onwards, which basically indicates that the kids from the academy. And that's the only thing holding them back a little bit, I think, at the moment because Hassan Hutel's tactics are absolutely spot on. He knows uh, what he wants to do. The players know what he wants to do. And it's even the academy, you know, they have more of a B side than an, uh, than an academy as such because He's basically laid down a playbook at Southampton in terms of how he wants all the teams to play. So if a player needs to make a step up from the academy, they know what they need to do, you know, in terms of their role uh, in, in for the team. So I, I expect them to be, where, you know, there and thereabouts in terms of where they are in the table, top 10 definitely. But for them to make the step up to, say, Europa League contenders next season, they I think there's a little bit of investment that needs to happen in the summer. Is it is it crazy to suggest that Carl Walker-Peters is the best English right-back right now in terms of uh, form. I'm not talking about who's the best player overall. I'm talking right now who is the best yeah, English I mean, right-back. I've been so <laughs> impressed with him. That's And that's not something you'd have thought you'd say again at the start of the season. I mean, just look at the depth England have at right-back. Trent Alexander-Arnold, Aaron Wan-Bissaka, Walker-Peters, obviously, but he's barely got a look in anywhere near the England squad. Kieran Trippier at, at, at Atletico. Kyle Walker, although I think his time may now be coming to an end with England. But yeah, definitely. Kyle Walker-Peters is over the last month or five weeks or so, I think he has definitely been the the English right back who's been in form. But I, I don't think he's going to get anywhere near the England squad anytime soon. So we've got a really interesting week of matches coming up. Some notables are Southampton Arsenal uh, on Tuesday, Chelsea Wolves. Uh, we'll see what the new, new, new look Chelsea looks like uh, on Wednesday. Uh, we've got um, Everton, Leicester City on Wednesday. We've got Tottenham, Liverpool on Thursday. Uh, but it doesn't stop there. Uh, we carry on to uh, Arsenal, Man United on Saturday. Uh, Southampton, Aston Villa, uh, Leeds, and Leicester. And then, of course, uh, that 
West Ham Liverpool game is going to be very exciting on Sunday. Speaking of West Ham, David, what's your take on West Ham and are they where they belong? Is there a case to be optimistic for 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 West Ham? That's a great question. I think what we've got right now is David Moyes has made us a very organized unit and it's the most organized I've seen us for a long time, probably since Sam Allardyce. And we don't look like making huge amounts of mistakes at the back, which is a nice change to make. On top of that, we've got a real good group of sort of attacking flair players. And then there's a core of just hardworking individuals, Antonio, Rice, uh, Selchek. So there's a nice balance in that team right now. And I think that's potentially why we are where we are. You don't need to do anything, anything like drastic with it. Like I said, it's just an organized team who've got some nice creative players and also little things really good at set pieces as well. Um, so it's, it's a recipe for, for like top half Premier League football. I'm happy to be a boring team for the next two or three years. Just give me some stability. And I think that's what we're going to get from Moyes. Just for grins, what sort of additions would make the most sense for West Ham? We, it's, it's difficult because before this season, I would have said to you, we need fullbacks, we need a centre-back. Um, but now the number one thing is a centre-forward and I'm concerned that they're going to panic by. I've read something crazy like Golden Sullivan have bought 40 different centre-forwards since they've been at the club, which would make sense. I saw a list of them and there were some, I had a season ticket until all this start, all COVID started happening, but I, I don't remember some of these players. So there's been a lot of strikers. I think that there were some names put out there like Patson Dacca or Buledia. I think both of those would be good players, but we'll wait and see. Adam Armstrong would be a sensible option from the championship. Um, midfield looks really, really good right now. Happy with that. I think we need to gradually start to phase out some of the higher earners who aren't potentially um, performing up to that level, sort of Yarmolenko, maybe Ryan Fredericks. Those kind of players maybe we need to start to phase out. Um, I think a centre back as well would be would be nice, but Balbuena and Ogbonna and even Craig Dawson have been fantastic this year. So, yeah. Well, we'll see how West Ham progresses. Um, you know, you obviously live in England. What's what's the mood like there? Is in terms of the lockdown, and do you see any any threats or stoppages potentially happening for the Premier League? Yeah, it's it's pretty rubbish here at the moment. I think that the the fact that football is happening is potentially keeping people sane. I think the government will do everything they can to keep it open. I saw Gary Neville make a superb point on Monday Night Football, maybe last week, where he was criticising the government for having a go at players for hugging when they scored. And he's like, <laughs> without going into politics, he's like, you know, the, the football is is keeping people on side with everything that's happening right now. I think if you took that away, it'd be a big issue. Um, what we've got at the moment is that a lot of the lower leagues, so your conference all the way down to like the lowest level of sort of professional football, are facing a, a likely uh, a likelihood of their season being cancelled. The local team that I have here, Hastings United, had their season cancelled last year when they were top of the table. And they're top of the table again. It looks like the season's going to get cancelled. So potentially you might start to see the other leagues gradually work their way up. Who knows what's going to happen to League Two, League One, even Championship? It, it really depends what happens over the next month or two. 
And uh, I think they'll do whatever they can to keep the Prem alive. Very good. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed and let's keep optimistic on this, uh, as I do think that it is so important for everybody's mental health uh, and gives us some fabulous things to chat about. Well, why don't we leave the pod there uh, for this week? We're sponsored by the Premier League Guide, Moneyball for Football, Opposition Analysis Plus Eye Candy. The current update is available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Please subscribe to Thinking Fan Football Club on YouTube and your favorite podcast platform. Join us for our next Football Thinking Fans podcast. For now, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao. 